please keep open in your Bibles. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, this is what we will be looking at um, this morning. I remember the Christmas carol which says, the hopes and fears of all the years. The hopes and fears that uh, we have at this time may be very personal and private and intimate and we do all have those hopes and fears and this is the time of year when those seem to come to the fore and we have shared concerns as well and um, uh, although you may be of a very optimistic kind of character apparently scientists have discovered that the human psyche is geared up to be rather pessimistic about the future it's a kind of way of coping by lowering our expectations. Well, there's plenty of reasons to be pessimistic, and I want to bring those before you um, this morning, not to discourage you, but rather to be able to set the scene and to be realistic. So here's a good reason to be rather low in spirit. Um, Brexit. I was reading in Evangelicals Now that nobody talks about Brexit inside evangelical churches because it's too contentious to do so. But here I'm going to keep on safe territory and just say to you, whatever your position, however you voted, however you think about it now, this is going to be a big muddle. (laughs) This is going to be a very, very difficult um, and uh, upsetting time for for many people. And uh, so it is. Changing the subject completely. Do you know this character here? Do Do you remember seeing this on film? I remember when this came out, saw it on TV, 1986, Short Circuit. This little character here is a a little military robot who somehow or other receives some energy in a lab uh, that makes it human. And uh, it's a sweet film, and uh, we all enjoyed it. I remember watching it as a family. Um, Artificial intelligence, which looked so sweet and nice in 1986, is not so sweet and nice now. It is very disturbing uh, how it is possible for robots to be teaching other robots and to actually get themselves into a place where they supplant humans. Artificial intelligence uh, coming to a high street store near you. Actually, it's probably somewhere in your home already and it will be having a massive impact. It's going to have a massive impact on job prospects. Uh, In my industry of civil engineering, for instance, whereas there's a sort of shortage of 600,000 people to be doing civil engineering work, this subject is actually massive. It's going to have a complete uh, uh, effect upon the way in which uh, people do business and uh, the jobs that are going to be available for us and our children and grandchildren into the future. Hopes and fears. Um, How about the surveillance society? So on the current predictions, nobody knows how many CCTV cameras there are in the country, but uh, there are probably about 6 million CCTV cameras out there. So that's sort of one for every 10 people. It's a bit like that statistic about how near you are to a rat <laughs> at any point in time. There's a CCTV camera 
somewhere near you. Well, you can try and dodge CCTV cameras. Um, of course, you can try to do that as well. Um, but 46.4 um, uh, million adults in the UK have a smartphone, which is a pretty high proportion. It's 70% plus of adults have a smartphone. And the uh, fact is, your smartphone is measuring, monitoring, assessing you every day and knows all about you. And there are big comp companies, corporations out there like Facebook and Google and Amazon who know many of your intimate details. I was interested to uh, read yesterday uh, this guy, Jonathan Hershen. Um, uh, he doesn't like his photograph being taken, so he appeared on the screen uh, wearing a cardboard box over his head because he has refused to let his image go into Facebook. And amazingly, he's managed to do it for the odd 20 years, last 20 years. But uh, he knows there's going to come a day when his cover will be broken because facial recognition is going to be, um, is already a very powerful means in which people, um, Facebook, exactly, knows you through facial recognition. Um, so Jonathan says this, privacy is an illusion. The reality is that as you go across the internet, you leave traces of yourself everywhere. How does that make you feel? And then there's gene therapy, which of course offers a great deal and help for those who have um, particular and previously untold um, sort of diseases. Uh, and this marches on apace. Don't know how you feel about that as well. All I can say is that against these issues of artificial intelligence, surveillance society, and gene therapy, there is no ethical and moral compass which is being deployed by anybody. There are fears and concerns and there is much wringing of hands and scratching of heads about what to do about these things. But where is the ethical and moral compass that actually has anything to say about these subject matters? Who is speaking about these matters? Who is saying there are things that we should do and things that we should not do. Uh, the council of despair is that there's always going to be somebody out there who's going to be pushing the boundaries, whatever. But it seems to me that we do live in a, a remarkable time when such things can be talked about and we have no idea where this may all go. And then, if one might uh, change the subject matter a bit, in terms of hopes and fears and where we sit as Christian people in the Western world, materialism continues. Ah, Westfield Shopping Centre in Stratford. I love it. Not. <laughs> um, the cathedrals of today, aren't they? These shopping centres. Croydon, the existing shopping centre is being completely ripped out and a massive Westfield is going to be parachuted in to there. 
these are where the people flock. This is where people are today, aren't they? In their thousands and thousands and thousands. We have to shop, of course. But there's a way that we shop. And uh, th these, um, these cathedrals of the Western world sort of tell us a great deal about what it is that drives our society, which is materialism. It is materialism because if, if spiritualism is, is not abroad, what is left but to feed the body? And that's exactly what takes place. And, uh, and belief decays, and that continues to be the case. And what do I notice here? I notice an empty church. <laughs> it's an empty church. Full shopping centre, empty church. A census of Scottish Christians in 2016 found that there were around 390,000 regular churchgoers north of the border, down from 854,000 in 1984. Research also revealed that 42% of churchgoers in Scotland were aged over 65. Bishop of Paisley, John Kennan, admitted he loses sleep over church attendance figures. He said, the real crisis that's going on is not that people aren't coming to us, it's that we've stopped going to them. It's a geographical and a human reality. Essentially, we've stopped being part of the homes and lives of ordinary people. To be honest with you, he says, I lose sleep over the declining numbers. If the numbers are declining because there's something we could be doing that we're not doing, then there's something we should be losing sleep over. There's a sense that we could do this better if we thought about this, came together and had some kind of plan. <laughs> I, I find this closing sentence from a bishop of the Church of Scotland uh, extraordinary. There's a sense that we could do this better if we thought about this, came together and had some kind of plan. What do you think of that? What do you think of that statement from a, a church leader? So we go back 2,757 years, and we could do the maths very well because we know very well uh, the years in which uh, the prophet Isaiah lived. And we know when this king, Isaiah, died, 740 BC. And this was a significant moment. And this is what we read in chapter 6, verse 1, isn't it? It doesn't just go straight into the vision, but Isaiah says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. And I don't think this is just simply a sort of a diary marker, but it is... It is there for a purpose, and it's there for us to think about, and it's there for us to understand. What do we know about King Isaiah? Well, actually, we know quite a lot about King Isaiah because there are other passages in the Bible that talk about him, in the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles. He was a king who reigned for a very long time, 52 years. Now, in terms of the length of duration of kingship in of other Judah, Judah kingdom kings, 
That's a long time. And we read about him in 2 Chronicles 26 that during his time, there was prosperity. He increased the defenses of the land and the kingdom was extended. But we also read this, and it's in 2 Chronicles 26 verse 16. Perhaps we might turn to that. It's on page 460 in the church Bible. 2 Chronicles 26 16. After Isaiah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now let's be quite clear what, what was involved here. He was not a priest, he was a king. And it was only the priests who were allowed to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. What possessed him to go and do this? Why did he think it right and proper that he should, as a king, go and do the work of the priest? Which God has specifically said that is the work of the priest. Well, it says his pride led to his downfall. Maybe he thought, I've done the job of king so well, I can do the job of priest as well. Well, that was human thinking, and that was his downfall because he had forgotten the word of the Lord. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted him and said, It is not right for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. It was a courageous thing, because they were confronting the king. Isaiah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn the incense, became angry while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple. Leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. So here were the trembling priests, the courageous priests, 81 of them, confronting Isaiah, but the Lord confronted him, and the Lord brought his judgment upon him. And the leprosy came. And as you know, leprosy meant uncleanness. And uncleanness meant separation. And that's exactly what happened to him. So that he had to live by himself. And his son, Jotham, became the, the prince regent. 
and took authority. So what a downfall. What a sad, sad, sad thing happened to this man who had achieved so much in his life and God had blessed him so much in his life but pride led to his downfall and led to God's judgment upon him. He's still alive but he's no longer operating as the king. But the day came when he did die and that's the day when Isaiah Isaiah went into the temple of the Lord or rather had a vision of the Lord in the year that King Isaiah died. So it was a sobering time. It was a sobering time. It was a time of uncertainty as it always was when kings died. What was going to happen next? And it was a time to be thoughtful when this man who had achieved so much had had the judgment of God upon him and eventually he died. So Isaiah did not live in 2017, but he, he did live in an age where he had the shared concerns of the society around him. And it says that on this, at this moment, the Lord gave to him a vision of himself. In the year the king as I died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What was Isaiah thinking when this day came? Probably just like any other day. Probably burdened with anxiety over the state of the land. Worried as other people were about what was going to happen next. Would the king's son turn out to be a faithful man of God? Concerned that he'd been given a message of judgment. And he'd been preaching this. And apparently people had not got any better but worse. So there is this day... The king has died, that's the headline news. If he turned on his internet, that was the headline news. Isaiah and Jotham, Isaiah and Jotham, Isaiah and Jotham. And here's a man of God in the midst of that situation. And the Lord does something. The Lord does something. He gives him a vision of himself. We see no evidence that Isaiah was asking for this by way of a prayer. He didn't know what had hit him when this vision came. Because it was something the Lord gave to him. Something the Lord saw that he needed at that time. And he is not unique. Because there are other men of God that we see in the Bible and... If we know our Bibles, we should be quite familiar with these passages. We think of Moses at the burning bush. Do you remember? He sees a bush in the desert, and the bush is burning. And he says, I want to go over and see this strange thing. What's going on? And then as he gets nearer, he realizes this is not a natural phenomenon. Because the bush is not consumed. But he hears the voice of God speeding out of the burning bush. And saying to him, this is holy ground. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. 
This is not an ordinary burning bush. This is the presence of God. Well, we think of uh, Job, the story of Job, and the rationalizing and the raging in Job's spirit about all that had happened. And then there comes a moment towards the end of the book of Job where, where the Lord reveals himself to Job in a fresh way. It seems to be by words, but such words, such powerful words that, uh, that uh, Job says in chapter 42, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is stunned by this revelation of God. These were good men. These were godly men. And then we think of Peter in the boat and the miraculous catch of fish. Do you remember that occasion in the gospel accounts? Where, where do all these fish come from? Who is this man? Is he a man? Depart from me, he says, Lord, for I am a sinful man. We think of John on the Isle of Patmos and in the book of Revelation. How he sees a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So Isaiah is not unique. These other men of God received a vision of the Lord. And in every case, they were not seeking this, but it was given to them. Now let us look at this um, encounter with God. And I'll call it an encounter with God. So Isaiah 6, verse 1. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now we think of Solomon's temple now. 200 years old. It's a building not as tall as this building, but as big as and longer than this building. And it consists of a holy place and the Holy of Holies. And Isaiah was a prophet, but he was not a priest, and he was certainly not the high priest. He would have never been into the Holy of Holies. Only one person was allowed to go in there, and once a year, wasn't it? Only the high priest. So all he would have known about that other place would have been a rumor. <laughs> But he knew the temple. And so whether this, this vision of the Lord was given to him whilst he was in the temple or whether it was just in the dreams of the night, nevertheless, he knew he was in the temple. But in the temple he sees a throne and that is special because there is no throne in the temple. There never was. 
God never gave instructions to Moses that there should be a throne established there, as appropriate as it might have been. But in Isaiah's vision, he sees a throne. And he sees the Lord seated on that throne. The Hebrew word at the beginning here for Lord is just Adonai, Lord. But we know who the person is because later on the word Lord Almighty is used with capitals referring to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the covenant Lord, the God of Israel. So he knew who he was encountering. This was not some sort of uncertain apparition of an angel being but it was the Lord the one who had encountered Moses not just in the burning bush but later when when Moses asked to see his face and and the Lord said to him you cannot see my face I will hide you in a cleft of the rock so you just see my back parts and here Isaiah he sees the Lord high and lifted up. High and lifted up. Here's the throne. And this is where the vision begins to break down. We can't put this into, into any sort of a, a pictorial demonstration. I wouldn't even try to dare to even suggest anything on this screen behind because it's inappropriate to do so. We live with the words and the bigness of it. And the bigness is that here's little Isaiah and he's in this place. Just close your eyes as it were and think of yourself being in this place as if this was the temple. And the whole of this is filled with the presence of the Lord. And there's a throne of enormous proportions. And there's a sense that the Lord is here in his greatness. And the train of his robe sort of fills cascades to the very edges of everywhere so there's no part of that temple that doesn't have the presence of the Lord about it and he's seated on a throne and we know what that means and then there are the seraphs or the seraphim the only place in the Bible that seraphs are mentioned we know nothing about these angel heavenly occupying creatures apart from this particular passage but they have wings six wings one covering feet two covering their faces their faces because even though they are heavenly beings and without sin they can't they can't look upon this mighty God and with two wings they fly they fly to do his bidding. They fly to be his servants. We don't know how many of them there are. But there's a chant going out. Well, it's more than a chant. It's a cry. It's a cry. Did you, did you get the sense of that as we read this passage just now? It's a big cry. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah, you're there in the temple and you think there's glory in this temple. 
But the whole earth is full of his glory. The heaven cannot contain him. And so they cry, holy, holy, holy. One cries and the other answers, and one cries and the other answers, and this, this goes on and on and on. This endless affirmation of the being of God. And there's a shaking. The doorposts and the thresholds shake. As in an earthquake. And isn't that right? <laughs> isn't that necessary? How could it not be shaken? And the temple was filled with smoke. The temple was filled with smoke as it was of the dedication of the temple itself where it says the priest could not minister because of the presence of God and, and the smoke that filled the temple at that time. Had it ever been filled with smoke again subsequent to that occasion? I don't know, but it was entirely appropriate and necessary that all that we have just said about the being of God in his temple should be accompanied by this sort of mysterious vision-obscuring smoke. If God were enforcing that truth that just as those seraphs needed to cover their faces, so it was completely inappropriate that there should be any insightful vision of the Lord himself. It was a mercy to Isaiah that smoke filled the temple. And here is a man of God. And he's had a fresh encounter with the God that he knew. But like Job, he might well say, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye sees you. A fresh encounter with God like Moses, Job, Peter, and John. And I come to this thought... As we read about this happening to Isaiah, we read about this happening to Moses, Job, Peter, and John. What does this mean for us? We read at the outset of the meeting a verse from Psalm 46 and I want you to turn this up now again Psalm 46 verses 10 and 11 because this psalm encourages us with these words in verse 10 be still and know that I am God I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
Now, I said earlier that Isaiah was not asking for this vision, just as I don't believe Peter and John and Job and Moses were either. The Lord gave it to them. But here we have a permission, an invitation, and a command to seek a fresh encounter with God. Be still and know that I am God. It's the voice of the Lord speaking to us. And that is why we should not and must not put these visions that these people receive, these encounters with God, on a shelf marked special only for some people because there is encouragement here in the Word of God for each one of us to have an encounter with God. Here is a word for busy Brighton Christians. Fed on a diet and now trapped in the habits of sound bites, full diaries, text messaging, and a multitude of distractions, we have become a people of poor concentration and low spiritual ambition. A.W. Tozer, who lived in the middle of the 20th century, ministered in America, wrote this at, in the preface to his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing in the self-confident, bustling worshipper in this middle period of the 20th century. If that was true in 1950, I'm sure it is true in Western Christianity in 2017. Above all, and I speak to myself, we want to be in control of everything, including our spiritual lives. So I was choosing hymns, songs to be sung today, and I always have the voice in my right ear which is saying, I've got to have some more modern ones as well, please. <laughs> I struggle, I struggle to find modern songwriting that has much to say on this subject. Because we are an I-dominated society and the God that people want is the God who is there to serve their needs, not a God who is there to silence us, 
but there to encourage us. Not a God who pushes us down, but a God who is always lifting us up. Not a God who is making us guilty, but one who is making us feel self-affirmed. And so those are the words we say and those are the songs that we sing. Because the dominant theme of Western Christianity is that God is grace. And we're needy and we need him to give us grace and to comfort us and to reassure us and to provide for us. And brothers and sisters, he does all that. But he is much, much, much bigger than that. And if our view of God is of the character that he is there to essentially, and I put it crudely, satisfy our needs, we have not had an encounter with the God who is. Let me repeat all we want to be in control of everything, including our spiritual lives. This is rather close to the sin of idolatry. This is rather close to the sin of idolatry, where we have crafted a God in the image that suits us, and we have him on our shelves at home, and he is taken down to satisfy our needs. But let us look at this self-revelation of God because it was a self-revelation of God. And see, back in Isaiah and this, in this vision, what it is about God that is revealed to Isaiah. And firstly, we see that he is a holy God. One commentator has said this well. The seraphs cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there is no other characteristic or attribute of God which is ever expressed in the Bible in this threefold way. It is never said that God is love, 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 or even that God is grace, grace, grace. They have to repeat again and again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, because this is his supreme attribute. Exodus 15 and verse 11 says, Who is like you, majestic in holiness? 1 Samuel 2 verse 2, There is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one beside you. Psalm 111 says, holy and awesome is his name. We struggle with this word holiness. And to be honest, we don't preach on it enough. So that it is no wonder that the people of God, all of us, have such a, an, an anemic view of what this word might mean. But let me just suggest to you, or think in your own minds, what do you think when you hear the word holy? 
Well, we think of holy people. We think of a sort of characteristic of life. But the fundamental understanding of this particular word is not so much to do with a moral quality, but to do with a distinctiveness, a difference, a separateness. So it is said that the vessels inside that temple that Isaiah saw in his vision were holy, not because they were morally beautiful, but because they were set apart. They were not to be used for profane things. The priests were holy people because they were set apart for the service of God, which is why it was such a terrible thing that uh, Isaiah, the, the king, went in to do the priest's job because he had not been set apart for it. Because holiness is that important to God, this idea of separateness. And as Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord and hears the seraph voices saying, holy, 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 the one overwhelming impression and experience he receives is that he is encountering something which is completely different to anything else that he's ever encountered in his life. In our Western society since the 19th century, we are so fond of categorizing and numerizing and explaining and defining everything we see around us that we put everything into that box. But here is a revelation of God and he's saying, you can't do anything like that with me. You can't put me in your boxes. I'm not to be defined by your laws. I live outside of that territory. I am not the God of the idols. I am the one true living God without beginning and without end. You can't categorize that. You can't understand it. I am the almighty God. Nothing is impossible for me. You can't understand that. I'm different. I'm different. Brothers and sisters, isn't this an amazing thing that we're called upon today to be those who worship the one who is utterly different from us? To worship. To fall down on our faces. Fall down on our knees. To be silent like Isaiah was silent. And like Peter in the boat says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And then the greatness of God. The God who fills everything in every way, says Ephesians 1.23. Or think of Psalm 139. Where can we escape from this presence of God? If I go down to the depths, if I go up to the heights, you're there. The greatness of God. How sad, we're not lingering on this point. Just, that's a heading, isn't it? But the greatness of God. He couldn't be in that temple vision without having a sense, whoa, how great this God is. At his authority. Isaiah, I want you to know this. I'm on a throne. I'm on a throne. Yes, the king has died. Yes, it's going to be Brexit. Yes, there's going to be artificial intelligence and all the rest of it. But God is on his throne. 
He's on his throne. It's not a little throne. It's filling heaven and earth. There's no, there's no atom in the universe that isn't outside the throneship of God. And certainly not your life or mine. Your family, your children, your concerns today. He's saying to Isaiah, you're worried about this. I'm on my throne. Ruling the universe. There's absolutely no possibility of anybody usurping the throne of God. Unquestioned rule. So I say to the bishop of the Church of Scotland, it is not right for us to be losing sleep over church attendance. That is not our calling. It's not our calling even to be thinking up a plan. But it is our calling to have a fresh encounter with God. And I think of that other man called Azza, not Azai, but Azza. The man who put his hand upon the ark to steady it from falling, which seemed like a generally sensible thing to do, but he was struck dead in doing so. Because God was saying to the people, I'm in charge. Don't meddle with holy things. And there's an inevitable reaction. There's an inevitable reaction in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. The authorized has it. I'm undone. It's like if I'm stripped bare. I'm unclothed. My defenses have gone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Brothers and sisters, you know, you know, that whenever people have a real encounter with the living God, that is the first response that is always made. That they recognize their unfitness to be in his holy presence. They recognize themselves to be unclean and to be full of sin. Foul and full of sin I am, says the hymn writer. Moses, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Peter, I'm a sinful man. Job, therefore I repent in dust and ashes. There's enough evidence here for us and by multitudes of experiences in church history to be able to say with absolute confidence that this is what happens when people have an encounter with the living God. And it is so much my prayer that we should see more of this in the coming year when people have an encounter with the living God and recognize that they are sinful and need a savior. Because why else would you need a savior from your sin? And why else would Jesus Christ come to die upon a cross? Why all the agony and the pain and the suffering of that if God is simply there to satisfy my needs? 
there's something much more fundamental, which is that we have an encounter with a holy God and recognize we're undone. We're under judgment. We need to be saved. Christian people need to know this because we've lost the language. But we pray for our, our families, our friends, our work colleagues, those who come in here and, and have tasted, tasted Christian things, but we pray that they would have an encounter with the living God. May God grant it. Why should this not happen? Why should this not be the case? Do we think the scientific mindset is so overwhelmed, the city of Brighton, that God on his throne is unable to do the things which God on his throne has done through generations? But this is a call to prayer, isn't it? It's a call for us to pray big prayers that God would show himself again in our generation as he has in times past. And how much we need to know this. And then there is this amazing provision, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, where one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And it's a wonderful thing. And it's almost, it almost seems to break the vision in a sense. How can this be that he's had this encounter with God where he sees only judgment coming his way? And then God so graciously offers atonement. It's an amazing provision. It's an amazing provision that this holy and different God should care for us so much as to send his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Doesn't it make the greatness of salvation so apparent to us? What a mighty thing God has done. There was no requirement for him to do this. Absolutely none. But he sent his own beloved son to die for sins that man had done. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. I love it in Revelation where the angel puts his hand upon the apostle and says, don't be afraid. I've got to be afraid. But the Lord says to us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He's reaching out his hand to lift us up. And then we see this recommissioning for service in chapter 6, verses 8 to 13. We read it earlier. Well, great and glorious service in the presence of the Lord, but it's not going to be great and it's not going to be glorious. It's going to be jolly hard work and very discouraging because what Isaiah is now being commissioned to do is to go and preach and preach and preach and preach and see only people getting harder and harder and harder and harder. And he needed this fresh encounter with God so that he knew that God was on his throne and God had made no mistake. And when God had given Isaiah the privilege and responsibility of ministry, all he had to do, but it was all, was to go and do it. He just had to go and do it. And all that he was offered in that service 
was hardness of heart and people refusing the word of the Lord. But every time he preached a sermon, the people just mocked and turned away or even didn't turn up at all. He would say, yes, but I heard the Lord. I met with the Lord and I'm doing what the Lord's asked me to do. And that's exactly what you and I are being called to do. Now, in the face of all the opposition and all the obstacles that we may be confronted with, we have to go and do the thing which God has called us to do. In Isaiah's case, that was a preaching ministry. In all our cases, it's a testifying ministry of some kind to be saying to people, the God whom you do not know, but the God whom you should worship is on a throne. He's ruling the universe, and one day we're going to have to give an account to him. And come to the place where atonement is found for your sin. Because there is only one place, there's only one name given unto men whereby we must be saved. And we all can say these words and we all have opportunity to do so and we will in this coming year. But we will do so in the knowledge that God is on his throne. We're not alone. The God of Jacob is with us. And that we're serving him. We serve him, don't we? He, he is the one to whom we must give account. And we're serving him. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be able to receive the truth of your word in our hearts and that you would make us obedient to the heavenly vision. We pray that we would not be those who paddle around in the shallows with such low spiritual ambition. We pray that we would be those who are ready to encounter you. Where we would hear your command to be still and know that you are God. Oh Lord, teach us this. You know big part of us wants, wants this, but quite a big part of us also shies away from it. And we just ask that you would strengthen the first and remove the second. And we ask that we may be a people who yearn to love and to praise and to worship and serve you. Teach us this, our Father, we pray. We do pray for those who are currently not in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, but you have called them by electing love from the beginning of the world and this is the year that you are calling them out of darkness into your light and we pray that we would have the privilege and the blessed opportunity of serving you in this way that your kingdom would increase that grace would be seen that we would see what a great saviour we have and what a great salvation he offers and we ask this in Jesus name Amen